You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we're talking ethics. Later, Harriet Vickers talks to Iona Heath, who's president of the Royal College of General Practitioners, and David Haslan, who's president of the British Medical Association, about their concerns for professionalism in the new NHS. But first, the shortage of organs for donation has long been covered in the BMJ, and so have potential remedies such as presumed consent. But now, new guidance from NICE, uh, following a BMA working paper, goes further and suggests what they call elective ventilation. To talk about that, I'm joined on the line from Adelaide by Dominic Wilkinson, who's a neonatologist and bioethicist at the University of Adelaide there. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Dominic. You're very welcome. Elective ventilation, what's meant by that? Elective ventilation is, is a euphemism. It's a medical term that's not very clear in itself, and it's not immediately obvious what it means, but it refers quite simply to the idea of ventilating for a patient at a time when it wouldn't be of medical benefit to them. To put this in context, elective ventilation was a term that was invented some 15 or 20 years ago when doctors were concerned about the lack of uh, of available organs and were aware that there were a number of patients in their intensive care units who were dying who were not eligible to be organ donors because they weren't brain dead but who might become eligible if treatment were continued for a bit longer. At that point in time, the main source of organs, and in fact really the only source, were patients who were brain dead. But in fact, most patients who die in hospital do not become brain dead. Most patients die in a more standard way. Their heart and lungs stop um, and they're declared deceased. Mm. This was going on in the 90s, um, particularly in Exeter, but then the Department of Health put a stop to it because of professional and public concerns. So what's changed now? Um, What's the argument for doing elective ventilation for organ donation these days? In the intervening decades, there has continued to be concern about a lack of organs for transplantation and concerned about the fact that people die every year on organ transplant waiting lists. And there's been a shift over time from a focus on brain death to a different form of donation, which is called donation after cardiac death. Patients who are very sick and in hospital who've reached the point where doctors and in consultation with families uh, have decided that it's no longer in their best interest to continue intensive treatment, that at that point in time, there's a discussion with uh, families about stopping treatment um, and after they have reached the point of cardiac death, um, that they might then donate their organs. The new proposal for elective ventilation, the reason that NICE and now the BMA have suggested that there should be some rethinking is there are a number of these patients who die reasonably quickly 
if treatment were continued for a little bit longer, it may be possible to talk to those patients' families uh, and find out whether the patient would have wanted to be an organ donor. So the difference is that this new form of elective ventilation, uh, and again, it's not a great term, is all about giving doctors enough time to find out from families whether organ donation is something that they and the patient would have wanted. Okay. Now, I mean, that seems quite reasonable. What are the objections that are being raised against this? Some of those concerns, I think, have related to some confusion about what this new form of elective ventilation is and whether it is, in fact, the old form of elective ventilation again. Some of the concern, particularly from intensive care doctors, is that this would potentially involve taking to intensive care patients who would not normally uh, be admitted to intensive care. So an example might be a patient who arrives in hospital having had a massive stroke at home. The doctors in the emergency department having talked to the specialists realise that actually their brain injury is so severe that no surgery or treatment can save them. They would usually uh, attempt to contact family and stop treatment in the emergency department. The suggestion is that if needed, those patients would be taken to intensive care to make sure uh, that there was enough time to talk to the family. Sometimes would involve uh, inserting catheters, tubes into the patient's blood vessels. It might involve inserting breathing tubes. Maybe the patients might be harmed. There's a theoretical concern um, as well Continuing treatment might mean that the patient survives, but survives in a very severely disabled state, for example, in a persistent vegetative state. Now, in the Journal of Medical Ethics blog, they've cross-posted um, something that you've, you've written, saying, actually, elective ventilation shouldn't be elective. It should be obligatory. What do you mean by that? What's your argument there? What I wrote there was an article that tried to turn around some of the concerns about elective ventilation and to suggest that actually we have very strong autonomy-based reasons for promoting this new form of the practice. If I were in a position of being critically ill, so critically ill that the doctors would think that uh, treatment should be stopped I would want those doctors to think very hard and to be absolutely sure before they stop that treatment. And if that meant continuing it for some extra hours uh, or a little bit longer, then I would certainly want them to do it. But there's a related feeling that I have uh, and that I suspect others might share, which is that if they were in that situation, I would want them to check and see if I wanted to be an organ donor. Uh, and if that meant continuing the treatment for a couple of hours to find out, then I would absolutely want them to do that. That seems like a, a remarkably simple argument there. Well, that's right. And I think one of the ways of defusing the concerns of the community and of the doctors is simply to say uh, that these are treatments the majority of the patients that we're talking about would already have in place. And what is being talked about 
is continuing those treatments for probably a period of a few hours. Thanks for taking us through your arguments there, Dominic. You're very welcome. And if you're interested in that, there's an editorial available online on bmj.com and two posts on the Journal of Medical Ethics blog, links from the podcast homepage. Now, Harriet Vickers finds out about concerns for professionalism. This afternoon has seen morals in medicine a changing landscape at BMA House. And, and with me from that discussion in the studio is Iona Heath, who's president of the Royal College of General Practitioners, and also David Haslam, who's president of the British Medical Association. So thanks very much to you both for, for coming in. Pleasure. Pleasure indeed. Um, so, Iona, I'd like to start with you because you gave a very interesting talk about what medical professionalism means um, and the, the title of today was slightly provocatively Are Doctors Simply Upmarket Mechanics? To which you equivocally said no. Could you expand on that a little bit and, and tell me why you think they aren't? I think they cannot ever be mechanics and it's really what has been described as the difference between a mess and a difficulty. And a difficulty is something that may be incredibly complex but there is a right answer. And mending a car is a difficulty. Treating a human patient is a mess because you are trying to apply general rules derived from population experiments to a a particular individual, a unique individual. And whenever you do that, um, you have uncertainty and you have the need for judgment. And you have a range of different possible right answers that you have to decide between that you never get that situation with a car. A human being is never a mechanical thing because a human being's subjectivity affects their response to illness and affects their response to treatment. You can have completely different responses. And that means the inevitability of uncertainty and the necessity of judgment always carries with it the risk of harm and you need professionalism to respond to that risk. You went on to talk about professionalism in in the changing landscape, particularly with the reforms, and you did make them seem very chilling, I must say. Um, One of the issues you raised was that care and cash are no longer as separate as they used to be. How do you think this could change professionalism, and, and do you think it's a real danger? I think we are already seeing it, even without the changes. I think the use of financial incentives explicitly to alter the behaviour of people who are supposed to be professional is intrinsically dangerous. And what I did was ask doctors to be much more reflective about the decisions they're making. What decision would they make about this patient in the absence of financial incentives? And how is that decision different in the context of financial incentives? And then really needing to address the difference. And I've argued elsewhere, I think it is incredibly dangerous to put in financial incentives to reduce referrals to specialist colleagues, especially when you're applying those to young and inexperienced doctors who've yet to work out the limits of their knowledge and understanding. They should be free to refer to somebody who they think has more knowledge and experience and expertise than them. And if we put a financial incentive in place to try and block that off, we actively book patients at risk. You're nodding there. Absolutely. Well, I'm just, just agreeing as, as, ever with, uh, <laughs> as ever with everything Iona says. I mean, it's completely intolerable in every sense for there to be financial incentives to doctors to behave in a particular way, like not referring. 
the danger from that is that you damage the trust that the patients have in their doctor and in the system. And once you've damaged the trust, I think the health service is at grave risk. At the moment, general practitioners and all other doctors have very high trust ratings with the public. And on the whole, if you come and consult me and I say, you don't need an x-ray, you don't need an MRI scan, on the whole, you trust me because you know I'm working on your behalf. If you think the reason I'm not referring you for an MRI scan is because someone's giving me a £20 book token, to be facetious, but it's, it's exactly the, the model, why would you trust me? And at that point, the whole role of the general practitioner changes dramatically. And I think we damage the system almost beyond recognition. Now, none of that means you shouldn't take notice of money. We should be careful about how we spend the limited resources of the NHS. So, for instance, Iona talks about the the young doctor in the practice who's uncertain and so on. There may be another way of handling that, like talking to the other doctors in the practice with more experience, more seniority. But that doesn't mean a block on referrals. It just means let's be sensible at how, how we do this. So, I'm completely against blocks blocks on referrals. I'm completely against nonsense like saying you can have seven hip replacements in the next two months. I mean, that just is crazy medicine. Of course, another issue that feeds into this financial topic as well is is the the tug between doctors looking at individuals and, and looking at populations, which with commissioning, of sure. course, is going to become more and more important. What do you think about this? How could this change professionalism? Answering your question and following on from what David had said, one of the things that trust in the doctor enables us to do is to protect people from the excesses of modern medicine. It's damaging to do too many referrals. It's damaging to do too many investigations. Mm. And the great thing about the way that the current generation of doctors has been educated outside a cash economy. You know, we've, I've never handled cash in my career as a doctor. If, if, if you've worked outside that then you, uh, and brought up within a publicly funded health service, you are constantly ba- balancing this individual person with the population. But if, if you make that an explicit... I can't do the best for you because I have to think about all the other people, then you risk losing the trust of this patient. Mm. And if you lose that trust, then they will demand everything because it's the only safe thing for them to do if they can't trust you to act in their best interest. So arguably, it's the the way to provide a a cost-effective, equitable health service is to insist on that trust. And you do that trust by making that patient feel and not only feel they are for the time you are dealing with them they are your preeminent responsibility you of course always have this in the background Mm. and you would counsel people about excessive consumption of, of of medicines because medicine is dangerous but you can't have this because i'm only allowed seven hip replacements and there are too many and you're too fat anyway that sort of thing which means i'm never trusting you again and you have to give me this or i'll sue you we have no health service left absolutely Absolutely. I mean, the only thing I disagree with in anything that you've said is you said you have to insist on trust. You can't insist on trust, but we can do everything we can to guarantee trust. And the only way you can do that is by behaving in a trustworthy way. You have to insist on a context which promotes trust. Sure, sure. Which is absolutely, absolutely vital. Mm. Do you have serious fears about the trust that patients will putting clinicians in the future? If at the moment we've got doctors at the top and journalists and and politicians at the bottom... (laughs) Where do you think we'll be uh, in Gosh, a few you make years? me feel uncomfortable now talking <laughs> to you with your journalist hat on. But uh, I do worry about this, though I hope we, by talking about these sort of things, recognising that there really is an issue here, 
and, you know, demonstrating leadership and so on and trying to influence. To a certain extent, the profession can make a difference here. And with clinical leadership in organizations that takes sensible decisions, which are based around the needs of the individual patients and the preservation of trust, then I think we can get through this. If you start to behave in completely sort of crazy target-driven ways that are ignoring the individual human beings, then we're in a mess. And one of the absolutely basic requirements for quality in medical care is giving doctors the opportunity and the space to think about what they're doing. And as soon as you have a rules-based system, you may get rid of the worst of medical care, but you do that at the price of getting rid of the best, the most creative and the most innovative medical care, because people are so busy having to follow the rules. That is not necessarily the best Um, outcome for patients. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be talking more about professionalism and other concerns when we host a roundtable meeting from the Nuffield Summit. After the health bill, what next? Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.